Well, good morning again. I'm Paul Van Dyke. For those of you who uh, don't know me, I've worn several different hats here over the years. And the hat I'm wearing today is I'm pinch hitting for Chad. And so we hope and pray that Chad and his family have a fantastic time while they're away. And for those of you who do know me, you're probably having the same thought that I had when Chad approached me. My first thought was, man, Chad, your bullpen is getting a little thin if you're wanting me to <laughs> do this. So uh, bear with me and appreciate you all being here. And on a personal note, I just wanted to extend some thanks to the, the church here for all your many prayers on my behalf as I've been recovering from my latest wreck and I'm nearly healed up and getting ready for the next spectacular wreck. So appreciate, appreciate that and all the meals and people that have just checked in randomly and see me out and about. I do thank you for that. Uh, so many of you know that I like history and appreciate it and like to study it. And so I thought today I would bring a significant historical artifact to get us kicked off. And so I have in my possession here that I wanted to share with you. This is a vintage Rand McAnally map. Okay? So this is a map. So for centuries, believe it or not, humanity used to follow these things. Okay? This, so this is a very special one, actually. This, we have Montana. You can see Montana here. And this one has Idaho right the back. This is very special. It's, it's a twofer. And uh, it's vintage, as I mentioned. This is late 90s, early 2000s, going on a half a century, or a quarter century. So if, if any of you are interested, I'm selling this. <laughs> I have a phone. So a map. Well, that's what we used to plan things with. And for about 10 years, my family and I, we, we would travel occasionally across the country, starting colts in different parts of the country. And so to begin with that trip, I would look at a map and plan out where we were going. And we were going to stop and see this person or stay here or do this or do that. And so we had a lot of excitement as we would plan those trips. Well, we would start. And then if your vehicle is anything like mine, you're maybe three hours into a three-day trip and you get a question from the back. Are we there yet? We're 200 miles in on a 1,700-mile trip. Are we there yet? And then followed up with this one. I'm bored. <laughs> right? And so going through a book of the Bible is a little bit like planning and going through your map, preparing for a trip. Excitement at the beginning, you're looking forward to it, and you're going to enjoy it. And now we're over a year into the book of John, and some of you might be saying, are we done yet? I'm getting bored. And so what I wanted to do today is just raise ourselves up a little bit and get some perspective on where we are and what's going on here. 
because it is easy to lose perspective and excitement since we're this far in. And so where are we? What's going on? Well, the author is John, of course, but who was he? And many of us associate the Apostle John with this picture right here. Many of us see this and think of John and we associate him with this a very demure, docile man laying on the shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. And if you read 1 John, and I would encourage you to come on Wednesday nights, we're going through 1 John and it's open to anybody who wants to come. So we, we think of John as this loving guy, almost effeminate, childlike right here. But that's not how Jesus saw him. In fact, Jesus gave him the name, the Son of Thunder. And in uh, verse 12 here of the text that we are going to read shortly, there's another son of, son of perdition that is mentioned. Son of is simply a Jewish expression trying to communicate the trait or the character quality of the individual by which they're best known. Jesus is saying, this guy is a thunderer. This is his personality. He is the son of thunder. It's not saying anything about his earthly father, Zebedee. It's saying everything about John and who he was. He was the son of thunder. That was how the Lord saw him. And I don't think after Jesus died that anybody probably called him that. I think that was a, a special name between the Lord Jesus and John. But the church, the early church, had a, another name for him. They called him simply the theologian. That was how he was known to the early church. And where we find him in this gospel is he's really near the end of his life. He's in his early 90s, approximately six to eight years to live. And the thundering personality of John comes out in his gospel and it comes out in his epistles. They are really written to combat the heresies that are growing up in the church. They started in the church and are infiltrating the church at this time. And the fact that his greatest legacy known to us is in the fourth quarter of his life provides me with some encouragement. I wanted to share th these two things with you and why they are encouraging. The, the first encouragement to me is I simply don't know when I'm going to have the greatest impact in my life. Our culture, the culture that we live in right now is saying you're going to have the most impact in the second and third quarters of your life. That's when it's going to happen. That's who we celebrate. That's who we look up to. But for John, it was late in the fourth quarter. I just don't know when I'm going to have the greatest impact in my life. And then secondly, if you are in the fourth quarter of your life, I just wanted to say, I need you. And this church needs you. What we need is strong, faithful believers that resolutely follow Christ no matter what. 
and we need your example, and we need people like you. So if you are in that quarter, I just would like to express our gratitude for the life that you've lived, and we need your example. And then as we move from John to the gospel that he wrote, it's much different than the first three that we find. It does not follow the same biographical sketch that the first three Gospels give us. In fact, here where we are at on Thursday evening started in chapter 13, and John gives us great and extensive detail on these last few days, but nearly five chapters out of 21 are given to Thursday. Thursday's a big deal to John, more than Friday, more than Saturday, more than the resurrection. Five chapters devoted to Thursday evening. Which brings us to the text today. This is the second message on the high priestly prayer, as this portion of scripture is called, or maybe even better, I like better, the farewell prayer of the Lord Jesus. And only John records this for us. And as I've been thinking about it and preparing for this message, I think there's a certain blessing and gift maybe that's a, that goes along with knowing you're about to die. So Jesus is here moments, hours before he is put to death. And so death is very much on his mind. He knows what's going to happen. And I think for those of us in an earthly sense, if we know we are going to die in moments, there's a certain gift and blessing that's associated with that. There's an opportunity to, to prepare yourself and communicate your, your thoughts and values to, to loved ones around you, maybe clear the air if you need to. But you can put your house in order and prepare yourself. And so there is a, there is a blessing of that. And when death is on your mind, what's most important is prone to come out. What's most important to you is going to come out. And so here we find the Lord Jesus with death on his mind and some very important things that he wants to communicate. And so now, if you would stand with me in honor of God's word we are going to read, I'm going to read John chapter 17, verses 9 all the way through 19. So the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I have been glorified in them, and I am no more in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, 
because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Thank you. You may be seated. So last week, we were in this passage, and uh, Chad preached that sermon, and there was the focus on knowing and praying Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supply. And so we, those are things that we would focus on in prayer and in knowing him. In verse 6, there's an emphasis switch. And he goes from talking about himself to talking about his disciples and begins this prayer for them. And I would like to also mention and uh, actually steal from next week, v verse 20, because this passage today is harder for us to grasp and understand without taking just a quick peek at that. And verse 20, it says that he does not ask these things in behalf of them alone, but for all who believe. So while this prayer is focused on the disciples, they are the first fruits, really, of his ministry, the emphasis also reaches out to those who believe. And so today there's four thoughts, four general themes that I have today for us to, to go through. The theme of asking, the theme of being possessive, the theme of joy, and finally the theme of interacting with the world. In verse 9, he begins to ask certain things of the Father pertaining to his disciples. And verse 11 is the first one. He expresses the desire that, the God, that God the Father keeps them. You know, what does it mean to keep, really? Well, you can think through maybe some different ways to bring this to your mind better. A gardener keeps his garden, so how does he keep it? He, well, he would till it, and then, of course, he would plant it, then he would water it and weed it, and if you're in Sheridan or Johnson County, you got to put a 10-foot high fence to keep, the, keep it protected from the deer marauding about. So you're going to keep it by providing and protecting for that garden. And for me, with livestock, I have, it's near and dear to me, there's a way of keeping your herd, you know, there's ways in which you provide for them and take care of them. And so in this sense, we can maybe flesh it out a little bit that his desire is that God the Father keeps them. He provides. There's an element of protection there associated with it. And then the second thought behind asking, the second thing he asks in verse 15, he requests that they not be taken out of the world and this prayer, as I've mentioned, is for the disciples and by extension us in verse 20. But in verse 9, he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. This prayer is not for the world. And in fact, scriptures only have really one message for the world, and that is 
to repent and to believe. That is the, the message that the scriptures have for the world. But that being said, there's also the, the heart of the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross. And the last words there, you know, Father, forgive them. Speaking to the world that has just put them on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And so while the message is repent and believe, he still has a great tender heart even for this world. So he requests that the God the Father keeps him. He also requests that they not be taken out of the world in verse 15. And it reminded me of a story of my own life. So I had a conversation years ago with my dad. And I was waxing eloquent, as only I can do, about the virtues of solitude, bordering on isolation, and uh, actually talking to groups of people larger than two is really not my thing, okay? This, uh, I'm an introvert by trade. And so I was waxing eloquent about you know, the need of solitude and how important that is and magnificent, really, solitude is. And he didn't say anything until I got done pontificating. And then he, he just said, well, Paul, no contact, no impact. And I've always remembered that. No contact, no impact. He requests that they not be taken out of the world. And then thirdly, that they be kept from the evil one. This is a request that he has, that they be kept from the evil one, also in verse 15. And the evil one, of course, is Satan. And if we had time, we could look at chapter 16, verse 11, where the evil one, the ruler of this age, has been defeated and has been judged by the Lord Jesus. So he asks, keep them. Don't take them out of the world, Father, and protect them from the evil one. And then finally, in verses 17 and 18, that they be sanctified in truth and sent. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be pure, clean, set apart. And truth, if you're there on Wednesday nights, you've heard it said ad nauseum. What is truth? Truth is in the open. That's what truth is. It is not hiding. It does not need to be hid. That is what truth is. It is reality, and it is in the open. Sin is in the mystery and in the shroud and is posing to be made pure, clean, set apart, living in the open. That's what he's asking for, that they be sanctified in truth. These are the four requests that Christ has listed for the men closest to him. And as, I, as I've been ruminating on this and thinking it over, the question I have asked myself over these few weeks and would want to also extend to you guys is what do I hold dear enough to keep? Lord Jesus hold these men dear and he's asking the Lord to keep them. What is it in my life that I hold so dear that I want to keep it, that I want to provide for it, that I want to protect it? What are those things in my life and what are those things possibly 
in your life. The next thought today that is striking to me out of this passage is the thought of possessiveness. You can't just read this and not notice how possessive the language is and how the Lord Jesus is talking here. Starting in verses 9 and 10, these are examples of how he felt. Those whom thou hast given me, mine are thine, thine are mine. This is how he feels about these men. God has given them to him and he has taken care of them while he's been here on the earth and he's getting ready to part and his preparation to part, Jesus' loyalty and love is being displayed here. These are my guys. He is possessive of them. And another quality here of that is not any of them will be lost. However, when we talked about it just briefly there at the beginning, Judas was not one of his. He is the son of perdition. And again, that is just simply a way of expressing the trait the person is known by. And isn't it interesting? Communion, that last supper, you had the son of thunder alongside the son of perdition. And there they were. And 2 Thessalonians 2.2 expresses a very similar thought as it goes through. The apostle goes through and talks about the man of lawlessness. There is a son of there in verse 2 as well. The son of destruction. So, not any of his people will be lost. And how many times have we heard or seen maybe a friend doing something heroic for another friend or a parent doing something heroic for a child, something superhuman nearly? And this is really the point that I'm trying to get at this morning is sacrifice indicates what you value. Sacrifice indicates what you value. Jesus is getting ready to give himself in the most sacrificial way possible, and the sacrifice itself is highlighting what his mission was. It's highlighting what was most valuable to him. Some years ago, I went to a, uh, a funeral for a guy that I had known really well. I'd worked with him very extremely closely, and I think I'm comfortable in saying I knew him about as well as any man did know him. And when I was there at the funeral, I was really surprised and shocked, actually, and confused, maybe. The, the things I heard family saying about him, I had never seen to be true. I'd never heard of them or witnessed any of what they, they were saying about him. But what I had seen to be true, what I had observed, was this. He was willing to sacrifice for work, but I'd never observed him sacrificing for his family. And so the thought that I have today as we leave this, this point and move to the next one and also would again extend to you is, Paul, what do I value enough that I'm going to sacrifice for it? What's something in my life or somebody that I am willing to sacrifice for because I value it that much? The next thought 
is the theme of joy in verse 13. And if you look at that, you will see the fantastic word, but. But, whenever I hear that word, I have a tendency to disregard what was said before the but and focus on what is coming after that because I just know that what's coming after is what they really want to say. So, mom, you made a great meal. I loved it, but, you know, so what are they really getting to? Well, they're really getting to what it is that they want to communicate. And so over the last few weeks, every time I've heard myself say, but, I'm like, oh, self-check here. What, what is it that is really important that I'm getting ready to say, or I hear it in my house? But, and then I'm like, oh boy, here it comes. What, what's next? What, what am I going to hear that's the main thought? There's always more coming when we hear that. And the thought here in 13, but the thought that follows is a full joy is possible. Full joy. What does it mean to be full? Well, it means to be crammed to the top. You can't get any more in there. That's what full is here. It is crammed to the top. And Lord Jesus says right here that that full joy is possible. And then he says these things. So then he begins to explain how we have that full joy. These things are going to lead to the ability to have a full joy. And the very first one and the most important that he says here is that these people of his are his. They are his people and they are guarded by him they are kept by him and this is the most relevant reality to my life having a full to the top joy is being one of his and it's too often i cruise over this and don't give it the the weight that it deserves and it's made me think uh, about this fall i've been in the wolf mountains last couple of weeks gathering cattle out of them and this fall has been absolutely stupendous and when you're up there on the wolves and you're looking down and you can see across the valley and see the big horns and the colors are incredible and the, there's green coming unbelievably in the grass you know you can take a picture of it and it doesn't quite capture it you can have an artist try to take a painting of it and it doesn't capture it. In fact, my memory will not remember it as well as the first time I saw it. There is no way to, to describe the magnificence of this fall from some of those views unless you are right there taking it in and, and enjoying it in that moment. There's no way to capture it. And there's no way really to capture the significance of this thought other than dwelling in it and being in that moment and knowing that you are his and that you are chosen and that you are kept and you are guarded forever. That is the first and the most important point of having a full joy. 
being one of his. And then he says the word, that's the next piece of having a joy, a full joy. We have the very word of God in its completeness. And if I can't be in his word regularly and with time spent in that word, how can I expect to have a full, complete joy? I can't. There's no way to have an expectation of a full joy in this life without being in the word of God in a very consistent manner. And then finally, they're sanctified and sent. And I know it's two things, but it's really combined into one there in 17 and 18. His people are sanctified and they are sent. It, there is a much pleasure in being chosen and being picked. And it doesn't take too much for us to recall being on the playground and being picked or passed over for the pickup football game, right? There's pleasure in being chosen, being picked. But also in that being picked, there's an indication of the mission, indication of the job. Okay, So if I'm picked to play on the football team, I never went to the other side of the playground to play tennis. I was picked. I was chosen. That picked and chosen indicates a job. Or when you maybe have a spouse and you're married, you, you don't drive down the neighborhood and park in the neighbor's driveway. You park in your driveway. You don't put your check in their bank account. There's a pleasure in a job associated with being chosen. And our team might not be the best, but there's a pleasure in being part of that team, that particular team. Or my family might not be on the nightly news because of the fame and the fortune that we may or may not have, but they're my family. So there's a delight and there's a pleasure. And also, back to our trip analogy that I started out in the beginning. Have you ever been down I-70 going through Kansas late at night? And so you're 45 miles from the last exit, right? So you're a 3,055 exit number. There's no lights, no towns, but you do see one little mercury light way off in the distance. And as you pass that exit, there is no bump in your heart. There's no emotional click as you drive by. But you know what? That light was on for somebody. When they went past and got to exit 3,055, there was an emotional connection. That light was on for them. It was, they were set apart. It was set apart for them. That was where they were going. That produced nothing in you, but everything in them. The light was on for them. It was their mission getting there. And so how can we have a full joy, a complete joy? He gives us three Three ways here. By first being one of his people, which means we're guarded and we are kept by the King of kings and the Lord of this universe forever, for eternity. And then by being in the word. And then finally, we are set apart and sent. We have a job. And understanding what your job is and how it's associated with your being called. And then finally, today, the last thought that I have for us is the 
thought of interaction with the world. How these disciples, and by extension, we are to interact with the world. And so here's a, maybe a simple definition of the world in the context of Scripture here. The people and systems that are only concerned with this life. This life, not the heavenly kingdom, not a heavenly life and things to come. It is focused, these people in this system is focused on the here and now, right here, immediately. This is what's going on. The world only cares about this life and is often at odds with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 14, the disciples are hated because of their association with Jesus. Really, it's a rejection. Well, we've taught our kids not to say hate, right? It's a strong word, not to say that, hate. So we, we have been rejected. The world rejected. They hated the disciples because of their association with the Lord Jesus Christ. And by implication, it will with us too. They will reject us. But despite that hate, the disciples and our mission is the world. And they are not to be taken out of or removed from the world, but left with a purpose. And so this is not really about uh, Jesus saying, hey, I'm leaving you guys, leaving you to drown in this world, and I'm out of here. He's not leaving them as much as he is sending them. In fact, they are left, but really, truly, they are sent and propelled into the world to detonate on impact, and they did. They detonated on impact. And if, even if you are sitting here or hear this or listen to it or whatever, and if you are a confirmed atheist, there is no way to deny the impact of these 11 men. The impact that they had on the world changed the course of history forever. Whether you agree with the mission and the one who sent them, irregardless of that, these guys, these men, got the message and the mission, and the world was forever changed. History was changed, and they did it in a short amount of time. It's fascinating, really. John lived to be an old man, but he was the only one. He was alone at this time. He was the last one and had been for many decades. But for the other 10, it was a matter of 20 years. It, it was short. And life and the world and history was forever changed. So these were the, the thoughts that I wanted to, to bring here today with you, these, these four things, and just remind you that this is the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus Christ with death on his mind, these men are on his mind and we are on his mind in that moment and wrapping up this for me the thought that i had and maybe the biggest takeaway for me is that as i interact with this world it should not steal my joy it should not rob me of my joy rather i should have a joyful confidence that i am ultimately chosen I'm ultimately kept, and I have a mission. Would you please pray with me? Father, we 
come before you and we thank you for John recording this prayer, this farewell prayer for us and how meaningful these men were to the Lord Jesus and how meaningful we are to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his heart and for laying this down before us. And Father, my prayer is that I would have this full joy crammed to the top and that because of it, there would be a, a difference that is seen and observed by a world, a world that is my mission. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here, and I would just like to also remind you that this is the Elder Fund Sunday, and so this is uh, money that is used over above the general fund to people within the church and community that have some special needs, and it is a really a great privilege to be a part of that Elder Fund on the other side and seeing how God uses that. So we appreciate you guys. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week. Please come and talk to me. And also, before you leave today, we have a women's event here in the auditorium. So if you would be able to help us stack up some chairs, that would be fantastic. This is the last time. I know I've asked you to stack chairs two weeks in a row now. Uh, if, if you would help us do that, that would be awesome. Thank you all so much for being here. We'll see you soon.